Good morning again. So, as we think about this time of year, what do you want for yourself and your spiritual life, your family? What do you want in 2020? What are you hoping for? What are you hoping uh, that God will accomplish? What are, you, what are you hoping that God will do in your life? What are you hoping he'll do in your family? What are you hoping he'll do in us as a body when it comes to, to 2020? You know, I don't make resolutions because I don't like feeling like a failure that quickly in the year. And so we talked about that a little bit in Sunday school. I just kind of I just kind of scratch those off. I don't I don't do that because it just doesn't usually work out very well. But but as we do stand between this line of the closing of one year and the opening of another year, I do find it a really valuable time. I don't know if it's in your schedule, but but for mine, especially, you know, Christmas, there's a lot of stuff that leads up to it. You probably were pretty busy leading up to, to last week. Right. Um, and then after the new year starts and people get back to school and back to routines, things really start cranking up again. But there's this little bitty window in between those two things, about a week long, maybe 10 days long, where things kind of slow down. And as we stand looking back, I find it really valuable personally, and, and I would recommend it to you. Um, it's a really valuable time to just, if your schedule allows it, to just slow down and look back. Okay, what, what happened this last year? You know, spiritually, my spiritual life, wh- where was I? What did God do? What kind of growth was there? What, what kind of things were lacking that I wish were there? And I look at family life and, you know, what are some of the, the things and, about our family that I was really encouraged by this year and what kind of growth was there? And then, you know, what are some of the things about family life that, that were a little discouraging and I would like to see different in the coming year? And then for me, church and work life are the same. And so for you, work and church may be separate. For me, it's the same. And so in, in my work life and in, in, in the church, like what are some of the things to celebrate and the things we saw God do? And then, you know, what are some of the things we want to see God do moving forward? And so I find this time in between the rush of Christmas and then the rush of new spring semesters to be a great time to, to do that and to kind of just do that, that, that evaluation, that look within, that introspection. Um, and so I would recommend that to you. And so, you know, as I look out over the church life, it's really been an amazing year work and, and, and church wise. Right. I mean, there's been some amazing growth. There's been lots of new people that have folded into relationships. Uh, there's been some really great studies and discipleship times and, and relationships formed out of those. Um, financially, God just has chosen to bless us. Um, and so things we don't focus on, but these outward symptoms of just some of the things God's doing on the inside have been really encouraging. Um, well, at the same time, looking kind of personally, I've had one of those really sluggish spiritual years, uh, family life and spiritual life, just kind of sluggish, like the engine's kind of gunked up and I'm going a little bit slow and sputtering. Uh, that's been my, my 2019. And so what I'm hoping is that kind of standing on the edge of closing one year and starting another is, you know, for God to kind of clean out some of the gunk, I, I'd love to say I could do it, but for God to clean out some of the gunk and just kind of reset, refresh spiritually to start running again. Um, maybe that's you, too. And yet there is some basic blocking and tackling of the Christian life. And we'll talk about them all the time. And over the coming weeks, you know, there's there's being in the word and searching for the Lord in the word and having meaningful time in the word and staying there until something actually happens within us. Yeah. Be in the word. Meaningful time in the word prayer. Right. So we should be praying that, that we, we did a whole study on prayer over this past semester and just just the ways of weaving prayer into our normal life and in our set aside times and the way to relate to God. And yes, we should pray and community. You know, that's it's one of the basic things. You should devote your life to a group of people, of fellow believers that should sharpen you and encourage you and challenge you. And you should sharpen them and encourage them and challenge them. Right. These are these are the basic blocking and tackling of the Christian life. But over this week and the coming weeks, I want to go just one step deeper than that. And in the text today, I want to just go one step deeper than that. Like, what is the goal of those things? All right, because it's easy to, to let our devotional life be an end to itself. And so, OK, I prayed today. Let's move on. I read the Bible today. Good. Church wide reading plan. Great. I spent a little bit of time with other people. Great. And, and our habits, our spiritual habits become kind of ends of themselves, but they're not meant to be. 
Right? They're, they're meant to be means to get to the end of intimacy with God, means to get to the end of a transformed life, means to get to the end to be conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. So let's go a little deeper than our spiritual habits and our devotional lives. Keep doing them, but let's go deeper than them. Another question we'd have to ask about these spiritual habits that should be part of our regular diet is what fuels them? Right, because it's very easy to get into a place where what fuels my spiritual habits is it's a routine, it's a duty I'm supposed to do, God will get me if I don't do it, or the day will go bad if I don't do it. And so I, I, I have these habits that are a part of my life more out of duty and obligation or fear than I do out of intimacy and love and pursuit. So what fuels them? Is it law that fuels your, your, your disciplines? Or is it grace? That's what the text is going to talk about today. Grace fueling transformed lives. Grace fueling transformed lives. And so with that, I want to kind of the word that's been that it's part of your bulletin and and that'll be over the next few weeks is I want to see in my own life and I want to see in, in, in your lives and us together is the word increase. And I don't mean increase of stuff. I don't increase of money or increase of number of people here. What I mean is increase in the kind of stuff that matters. And so today, I want to see an increase in the pursuit of godliness out of my life. And an increase in the pursuit of godliness out of your life. And not to do that out of guilt and obligation, but to do that out of what the text says. The grace of God appearing and breaking into your life and fueling that. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, increasing in our witness. There is a lost and dying world that is headed to a literal hell apart from God forever and forever. And it doesn't matter how nice they are. And it doesn't matter how good of friends we are um, in the street or in the cubicles next to each other. They are headed for an eternity apart from God. And and for my own life, and I think for us, that really didn't phase us. And so I want to see God birth a burden within us that fuels a desire and a burden for the souls of the people around us. And then the third thing, in treasuring Christ, in the treasuring pursuit of Christ. Philippians 3 will be how we close that out in a few weeks. Paul counts everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And I want to see God increase within us that everything increasingly becomes loss because of the surpassing treasure and worth of knowing Jesus. And so that's the roadmap for the next three weeks. Uh, we're going to do Titus 2, 11 through 14 today. Um, so let's read that and then we'll, we'll pray. Uh, so Titus 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, Godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. So, Father, make us zealous for good works. Make the burning desire of our heart to be a positive life of godliness and righteousness. God, make us zealous for good works. Zealous to see the gospel spread. Zealous to see our lives and other people's lives around us changed. Zealous to see people flourish and marriages flourish and families flourish. Zealous for an impact. And God, that's not something I can manufacture in me much less us. And so it's something I'm asking for you to produce by your grace and by your spirit among us. And so, Father, we ask for that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So God's grace makes us zealous for godliness. God's grace makes us zealous for godliness. Uh, I'm going to give you Titus in a nutshell. So Titus in a nutshell is good doctrine, sound doctrine, leads to good works. Sound doctrine leads to Good works. Or to put it another way, the gospel leads to godliness. The gospel always must and certainly does lead to godliness. And so some of the verses that, that say that in verse verse one, um, he talks about for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. 
You see that? So I want their faith and their knowledge of the truth to line up with the godliness of their life. I want them to know something so they do something. And then later on in, in, the chap, in, in chapter 1 in verse six, uh, 15, 16, they profess to know God, but by their works they deny Him. Do you see that? Like, they say with their mouth, we know God. And what is Paul correcting? Their works say that's a lie. And so... What they say doesn't match with what they do, so it's not true. Uh, chapter 2, it talks about relationships within the households and, uh, and different relationships and in, in, in servants. And those are given, why? So that the word of God, the gospel may not be reviled, and so that the gospel may be adorned. And so the gospel should produce good works. Your good works keep the gospel properly clothed so that it's received by people. And then here in, in, in chapter 2, it is the grace of God, the gospel that teaches us to renounce ungodliness and to live godly. And then in chapter 3, verse 4 through 8, in verse 4 it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works we have done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. And so you've got that, right? All the good works He's talking about in the book of Titus are not, you've done good works that make God's goodness part of your life, that make His salvation come to you. That's not the case, right? You didn't do works in righteousness, you received mercy. Then look at verse 8. This saying, this gospel saying, is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Why? So that those who have believed may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Do you see the connection? The gospel leads to godliness. Sound doctrine leads to good works. And that's been Titus's point. Like the church is a mess because they've got this view that grace and the gospel is this card to kind of live however we want. And Titus, or Paul to Titus is like, no, go set everything in order. Make sure they understand here's the gospel. Here's the riches of the gospel. It is not your works of righteousness. It is in the mercy that God's given you so that you'll devote yourself so that, that in faith you'll live a different kind of way. And that's the point of Titus. Sound doctrine leads to godliness, to, to a different kind of living. And so God's grace makes us zealous for godliness. Let's look at the first step. It is God's grace that offers us a saving love for Jesus. It is God's grace that offers us a saving love for Jesus. Now, if you had a different experience than this, I want you to tell me about it. So on Wednesday, there's a bunch of wrapping paper and it's like the Tasmanian devil comes through and he tears everything up and there's this puff of wrapping paper smoke and then everything's done. It's like a five minute process. It took you months or, you know, if you're a guy, it took you Christmas Eve, whatever. <laughs> that was me. Um, but one of the things I did not hear on Wednesday is, Dad, thank you for these presents. As soon as the new year comes back, I'm going to start earning them back. I'm going to start paying you back for them. Did y'all hear that? Man, as soon as we get to the new year, Dad, I promise you, I'm going to start paying you back for all these gifts. Anybody? That's not the way gifts work, is it? And yet we have an entire world out there that operates in their life with God like this. I will do my religion. I will work hard to pay you back for your goodness to me, to pay you back so I can be in a relationship to you. And that's bad enough that the whole world lives that way but we have churches filled with people who relate to God that way, too, don't we? Oh, God, Jesus is such a great gift. Oh, God, this is so amazing. Let me get to work paying you back. But that's not the way gifts work. That's not the way grace works. Right. And so that's what we're, lo we're looking at today. There's these massive religious distortions that we run into, one of which is called legalism, which is I do good things and I do enough religious stuff and I sit in church enough and I give enough or I come to Sunday school enough or I, I'm good enough to people to earn God's approval. And so God should give me good things because I'm I do good stuff. And, and God should love me because I do enough good stuff. And if, if, if he doesn't love me or if I don't feel like he loves me, it's probably because I haven't done enough good stuff. And so I feel really guilty. And you know what kind of life that fuels? Self-righteous, proud, guilt-ridden. But you know what kind of life it never will fuel? It will never fuel a life of deep love for Jesus Christ. 
And if we don't go that way, because maybe that's not your flavor, we, we go to this other extreme called license. And then it's like, man, I've got grace. Don't judge me. I've got grace. I can live however I want. I've got grace. God really doesn't make any demands on my life. I've got grace. I can just bob along the surface and, and kind of live how I want to live. It doesn't really change me. And that is not grace either. There is a saving grace where God comes and he rips the veil of Satan off of your heart that blinds you from seeing the gospel, uh, uh, the, the, the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And he rips that off and he shows you the desperate poverty of your soul, the desperate unworthiness of your life, the desperate separation of your life from God for all eternity that you deserved and you know you deserved it. And then he shows you the bright, gleaming glory of Jesus who lived and died and rose again to offer you life, to offer you forgiveness of sins, to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. And that is good news. And that will never make you proud. You will never look at the cross and say, look how great I am. If you do, you've missed something. And you'll never look at the cross and say, man, that, I bet that makes no demands on my life whatsoever. You'll look at the cross and you'll be so enthralled with a love for Jesus that you will pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or you didn't really see the cross. You didn't see, as the thing says, saving love for Jesus. You may have seen Jesus, but you didn't see saving love for Jesus if it didn't capture your heart in any way. But that's grace. It fuels a love for Jesus. Your works will never fuel a love for Jesus. Your spiritual laziness will never fuel a love for Jesus. But seeing the brightness of the glory of the gospel and Jesus will fuel a love for Jesus. And that's what we see in this first first part. All right. And so as we jump in, look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Right. And so the point of Titus is good work or, or the gospel leads to godliness. Right. So we've gotten that. Now, the grace of God has appeared. Do you know what God's grace is? It is his active goodness towards people who do not deserve it and who could never earn it. It is God's active love, his active goodness, his active favor on people who do not deserve it. In fact, they deserve the opposite. And who could not earn it ever with all of the works that they could ever put together? They could never earn it. And so grace is God's active goodness in your life that you don't deserve. You didn't Earn. And the text says the grace of God has appeared. Right. The word appeared means it has broken into history. It has broken into the experience of humanity. So grace is now part of history. It is now part of your experience. It is now active and alive. Grace has appeared. It broke onto the scene. This is a very rare word in the New Testament. And most oftentimes, you know, when it appears. Around the birth of Jesus. Him appearing on the scene. Do you know where else it appears in the text? We're waiting on the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the grace of God has appeared. What is he saying? That when Jesus invaded the earth in human God, in human form or, or fully God, fully man in human form, grace entered into the into the history and the experience of the world. And so Jesus's life, death and resurrection thrust grace into our experience and thrust grace into the world and thrust grace to where it can be part of our lives. The grace of God has appeared. It appeared at the coming of Jesus. It appeared at the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. It broke into history. But it hasn't broken into everyone's history, has it? I mean, we get we get the privilege of sitting here every week. And, you know, if you get tired of me, you could go to like 15 other places within a really short car ride and you could hear the gospel. You could hear you know, good doctrine. That is not the experience of the vast majority of humanity. So much of humanity does not know that grace in the person of Jesus invaded the world and can be part of their experience with God. And so, yeah, I get to enjoy grace. I get to receive grace. We're going to see that grace saves me. But man, grace is not meant to be hoarded. 
It is not just meant to be for my salvation and my enjoyment. It's meant to be for the salvation of the world and the world's enjoyment. The grace of God has appeared. And then the big question for the rest of the text is, what does the grace of God do? What does the grace of God accomplish? And he's going to give the first part of the answer, which is the point, right? He gives us a saving love for Jesus. It saves us. It takes us from death to life, from darkness to light, or darkness to the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dearly loved son. It's the first thing it accomplishes. Look at it. Bringing salvation to all people. Right? It's appeared bringing salvation to all people. And so what is grace's first accomplishment? It is salvation. That's the part we usually get right, isn't it? Yeah, by grace we're saved. Uh, if you've been here more than like a week... You've probably heard that you're saved by grace, not by your works. And if you haven't been here, you're saved by grace and not by your works. Right. OK, so now you've heard it. The grace of God brings salvation to all people. It brings salvation. That does not mean that the grace of God, it's universalism. Everybody will be saved and God loves everybody and it's all good. What it means is that at the coming of Jesus Christ, grace opened up, the the coming of Jesus opened up the way of salvation for people. It opened up the legitimate offer of salvation to the world. And before the coming of Jesus, the offer of salvation was not present for the world. And after the coming of Jesus, the offer of salvation is now there for the world. And so grace brought the offer of salvation to humanity. It opened up the only way to grace, the only way to salvation, which is through Jesus. That's what the grace of God did. And if you're sitting here and if you're a believer in Jesus, it opened up the way for you. It is by grace you are saved through faith. And that has nothing to do with works, so that you don't boast about it. Because I promise, if it had anything to do with your works, you would boast. And so would I. Because that's what we do. But it is the grace of God that has brought salvation. It is grace that has made a way for salvation. And this is what we generally think of when we think of grace. It's saving grace. Right? And so let's just say, you cannot... Earn your way into this grace. You can't do enough good works for your neighbors and your friends and the people around you. Like you can't you, you can't earn your way in. You know what else you can't do? You can't religion your way in. Like you can't sit in this church enough times to get to God. You can't sit in a Sunday school class enough times to get to God. You can't do enough Bible studies to get to God. You know what else you can't do? You can't claim your family lineage to get to God. Like, you know, dad was a pastor and granddad was a deacon, so I'm pretty sure I've already got a foot in. Right? That's not how the thing works. Grace invades your life. It unmasks you to see the depths of your depravity and sin. And it shows you Jesus who died on a cross and rose again to offer you the only hope of forgiveness, the only hope that your debt could be paid because you could never pay it back. And that it opens your eyes to that and you turn. We use the word repent and the Bible uses the word repent. It's just turn around from sin, from self, from your way right away to God, towards God. And when you turn from your sin to put your faith in Jesus alone, he'll save you. Grace is invaded. But again, I tell you, that is not meant to be hoarded by you. Because there is a whole world where grace has not invaded their history in the person of Jesus. They have no clue who that is. They have no clue what he offers them. And there's a reason that we focus on Lottie Moon for two months a year. There's a reason we encourage you to give generously. There's a reason that we celebrate the missionary units God sent out of this church into the far corners of the earth and the really hard places of the earth. There's a reason we celebrate that, even though they were our dearest and best friends, many of them. Because grace hadn't invaded the places they're going. And if somebody doesn't go and say that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again and he will offer you life, it will never enter into their experience. 
And we don't get to say about missions, yes, God, let's give some money, but send someone else. Let's give some money. Send people from that church. Let's give some money, but don't send my family. Let's give some money, but let's take all the best and the brightest from First Baptist. They get more people anyways. No, God, send every single one of us and then just replace us with more that we can send to go again. That's what we plead for. That's what we want. Because the grace of God has appeared, it's broken into our history, and it's meant to do something. After it saves us, it's meant to do something in us. God's grace offers us a saving love for Jesus. And I put it that way very intentionally, because I don't want you to just think, oh yeah, by grace I'm saved. I don't want you to get the idea that, you know what, I've got the, the get out of hell free card and the, the, the one way punch ticket to heaven card. And so now I can just kind of do my thing. I don't want you to get that idea. If it doesn't produce a love for Jesus in you, it's not called the gospel. It's not called salvation. If it doesn't give you affections for Jesus, if it doesn't give you love for Jesus, if it doesn't make you want Jesus, it's not salvation. It's an insurance policy that will never cash in for you. And so it's God's grace that offers us a saving love for Jesus. Secondly, it is God's grace that fuels a hatred of sin and a positive life of righteousness. It is God's grace that fuels a hatred of sin and a positive life of righteousness. Now, I think I'm pretty much 100 percent on this one, but it's definitely a high, high percentage. Distance from God. Intimacy, or I'm sorry, intimacy with God and love for God and intimacy with Jesus and love for Jesus does not disappear in a moment. It is not something that just flushes out, disappears, and all of a sudden the Grand Canyon sits between us and the Father or us and Jesus. Instead, we're humans. We leak. We have leaky buckets in our hearts and our love for Jesus drips out drop by drop, drop of compromise Drop of sin that I make friends with and I don't fight anymore because it's it's respectable or nobody knows about it. Nobody sees what I'm doing and really it doesn't hurt anybody. And so I can just play with it. I can keep it as long as it doesn't become too big a deal. Drop, drop, drop. Complacency. Just drop, drop, drop. I just neglect pursuing God anymore because things get so busy. Drop, drop, drop. I just I just I get into this frantic busyness and this frantic routine, but at least I'm still going to church. Drop, drop, drop. And then at the end of this process, at some point in your time, God is gracious enough to alert your heart. The Grand Canyon is between you and I again. And that's how that's how it works within our lives, that this distance comes over time. Did you know the Jewish calendar was basically written around religious festivals almost once a month? God had his people throw a party. And do you know what the focus of the party was? A specific event of deliverance, a specific event of provision, a specific event where God invaded the life of the people. And so what he realized is people's hearts leak. They drip and they drip. And so what God did is wire into his people's calendar this almost monthly reminder of here's how I've invaded us or invaded your your history. Here's how I've delivered you. Here's how I've provided for you. Here's how I've been near to you. Here's how I've taken care of you. Because he knew they forgot and they know and he knows we forget. Now, New Year's is not a spiritual holiday. It's not a it's not a party God throws, but it can be. It can be one of those moments for us to stop and remember. To stop and remember what has God done in my life over the last year? It can stop and remember what has God done in our family this year? Stop and remember what has God done in the church this year? Stop and remember what has God done in our business this year? And we can be reminded that God's hand was part of tracing out the story of this entire year. Because it's so often that like we get through a week and we miss it. We get through a week and we just get through a week. And then it's like, okay, we better uh, we better make some lunches because it's about to start again tomorrow. And that's how we get through about 52 weeks a year. And so there's this this moment to stop. And you know what? God has been tracing a story. God has been present. God did not leave or forsake. Just like he promised, he didn't. He wouldn't. He's been actively involved in every detail of our lives. And you know what else it does? It allows us to look back over the course of our year and say, you know what? There's some things spiritually that aren't what they should be right now. 
And the remedy for things in your life that aren't what they should be right now is not try harder. It is not do better. There is no instruction apart from what we're talking about today. There is no instruction like you need to work harder and get yourself straight so you and the father can be straight again. There is no do better and you're going to make everything work out okay. Do you know what there is? There's the grace of God, the active goodness of God to people who still don't deserve it, even though Jesus has saved them. And that saving grace then pushes itself into a life of transformation, a life of change, a a transforming grace. And so I'm afraid we've taken this whole grace thing. We've just gotten it wrong. We've gotten it like, I've got grace. I'm good. I've got grace. I said, don't judge me. I've got grace. You just you just do you and you let me do me. And I'm fine because I've got grace. That is not biblical grace. Because the grace that saves you so captivates you with love for Jesus that it changes who you are. It changes what you desire. It changes what you pursue. And if it doesn't, please don't pretend like it saved you. Because the grace that appeared to bring salvation is the same grace in this next verse that is going to empower you to turn away from a life of temptation and and, and ungodliness to a life of positive righteousness. It is God's grace that fuels a hatred of sin in your life. Do you hate sin? I mean, I mean, all of it. I don't just mean the stuff that makes the news. Do you hate the pride of your own heart? Do you hate how easily you slip into gossip and slander? Do you hate how you envy the stuff other people have? Do you hate sin in your life? Because that grace that wonderfully saves you is a grace that wonderfully transforms you and trains you to hate that stuff. Because there is a better, richer, fuller life that is not that that doesn't have that as a part of it. So let's look at it. What does grace do is is what this this text is answering for us. What does grace do? It gives you a saving love for Jesus. What does grace do? Training you, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. So do you see the negative and the positive there? The word for trained is the word for educating a child. And when you educate a child, you're giving them like positive knowledge of of history and formal education. You're teaching them how to tie their shoes. You're teaching them how to ride bikes. You know, you're, you're teaching them how to how to have hopefully some semblance of manners and respect for other people. You're teaching them. Here's what it's like to be an adult functioning human being positively. But part of training a child is also negative. It's disciplining a child. Right. When they rebel, it's correcting them. When they get it wrong, it's correcting them. And so that's what this text is talking about. There is a negative. There's a a renouncing, a putting off, a, a, a fighting and expelling out of your life. And then there's a positive. Put this on and live this way. There's a positive life that comes out of this. And so the, the grace of God teaches you or trains us like children to negatively renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Do you see that? It is grace that trains you like a child to hate ungodliness and trains you like a child to turn away from the things that destroy you. And it's grace that does that. It's grace that gives you the power. It's grace that gives you the desire. It's grace that gives you the 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 hatred for these things. Grace trains you like a child to renounce. That is the word for willful, conscious rejection. Grace empowers you to go down into your heart and to see the things you desire that God does not desire for you. To see the things that I desire that are contrary to the ways God has. And to pull that out of my heart and say, no, you can't stay. And do you realize what that is? That's grace that does that. Grace doesn't say, hang out, you're doing good. However you want to live, whatever you want to do, you're cool. I'm grace. I got you covered. Grace says we're going to walk down into the deepest, darkest, ugliest corners of your heart and we're going to start yanking stuff out. Because I'm going to train you to hate that. I'm going to train you to pull that out. I'm going to empower you to pull that out. You're going to renounce ungodliness. That is the the negation, the negative of the positive word that's said in the next line. To live godly. And so to, to renounce ungodliness, to willfully reject ungodliness... 
to reject the things in your life that don't please God, that don't line up with God, that oppose God. And grace is just as much operative in pulling that stuff out as it is in 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 forgiving you when you fail and saving you from death to life. It'll train you to take the thoughts, words and actions of your life that are displeasing to God and yank them out. That's what grace does. And then look what else to to renounce ungodliness and to renounce worldly passions. John Calvin said that our hearts are a factory of idols. That your heart is continually passionate about, continually lusting for, continually desiring the stuff that this world has. And it latches onto approval and it pulls in and becomes passionate about the approval of others. That's a worldly desire. Not loving other people and being connected to other people, but your heart being so attached to other people that it's that it desires that more than God. We can we can get attached to stuff. Man, we get so attached to stuff. Y'all are going to have credit card bills in about two weeks that prove it. And so am I. Right. But it teaches us to renounce worldly passions, our heart, our internal passions, latching on to this world and what it offers and living for it. Grace teaches us to hate that, to fight that, to war against that. And then relationships we shouldn't be a part of and physical encounters we shouldn't be a part of. That's the way we think about it. And that's true. But it's also the neutral stuff like stuff and money and work and approval and success and people and relationships that our heart goes and it just latches onto and it and it takes the place of God in our affections. And you know what grace does? It trains you to willfully war against that stuff, owning your heart, your worldly passions. But I think this is where Christianity gets a bad rap as we stop there, don't we? Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't want this. Don't want that. That's bad. That's wrong. Stop doing it. And, you know, that's the extent of Christianity. Well, who wants that? Because there's a whole nother part of the verse, isn't there? It doesn't just teach you to say no. It teaches you to say yes. It teaches you to long for the right longings and desire the right desires and and have your heart's affection set on something that's worthy of your heart's affection and to have the the holes of your life filled up with something that can actually eternally fill it. And his name is Jesus. And it teaches you, grace teaches you to renounce ungodliness, but it teaches you in every area of your life to walk in positive righteousness, not just stop doing stuff. And so in the area of self, it is grace that will give you self-control. Do you know you are totally out of control apart from God? You are not under your own control. Some of like we experience this even as Christians, don't we? Because as much as I'm committed to reading the Bible every day this year, do you think I will? I don't control me. Paul was like, I hate the things I do. I do the things that I absolutely don't want to do. And the things that I do want to do, the positive things I want to do in my life, I don't do those things. Who can deliver me? And that's your experience, too. And you know how I know that you're completely out of control and under the control of sin and Satan apart from God? It's because one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self-control. There is no way to master your insides, to master your affections, to desire what you should desire, to master your words and to master your actions in a way that glorify God. Unless the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of self-control in your life, you're out of control. And so grace will give you self-control. That's internal. Grace will also in your relationships with others give you uprightness. An integrity, a dependability, a trustworthiness out of your life. No charge can be brought against you so you can be trusted by the people around you. No charge can be brought against you so your testimony, when when you say that you know Jesus, actually, the testimony of your life says the same thing. And so in the circle of others and in relationships, grace will train you to have the kind of character that, that makes relationships flourish. And so self, others, and God. Grace will make you godly. Grace will make you think and desire and act and talk in a way that pleases God, in a way that, that, in, that, that enhances your knowledge of God and that enhances others' knowledge of God. And all of that is the operation of grace within you. 
That's what grace does. Grace doesn't stop at the moment of salvation and then pick back up at the end of your life or pick back up at the end of the age. Grace operates today. The grace that saves you leads to a grace that transforms you and changes you. And then it motivates you by a grace of you're waiting for the final redemption. Right. Waiting for the blessed hope, waiting till Jesus comes back and makes everything right. And the way grace appeared by invading the world prepares you to wait for Jesus to come and appear and invade the world. Same word, rare word. Grace invades now becomes personalized. Jesus breaks into history and Jesus will break into history again. But I want, see, I want you to see one phrase because you might be tempted to, to think, well, man, that's all well and good, but you don't know what I'm going home to. You don't know what my marriage is like. You don't know what's going on with my kids. You don't know what's going on at work. There's a little phrase in here. Teaching you to live self-controlled, upright and godly. When? In this present age, at your address, in your time, in your circumstances that God has ordained, Godliness is not something like when circumstances get right, then, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to take care of that godliness thing. No, godly is meant to be lived out right where you are facing right what you're facing, walking through right what you're walking through. And grace can empower you, even if your spouse never changes, grace can empower you to go be different with your spouse. Grace can empower you, even if your kids never act one ounce differently, to empower you to go live and love your kids the way you're the way that God would love your kids. Grace can go empower you to walk into a hostile work environment where things are an absolute mess and the boss is an idiot. Because, of course, he is. He's the boss. Right. What does he know about running things just because he's running things? Right. That grace can empower you to go be godly and live within your work circumstances and in your workplace in a way that displays God. It's not meant for some ideal age. It's meant for this one. It's not meant for some ideal time. It's meant for this one. In this present age, while you wait, that's a motivator. This isn't all that is, and this isn't the end of the story. Jesus is going to break back into history again. God and Savior Jesus is going to break back into history again with its glory. And it's all going to be right. That's our hope. Not that it works out here, but that it works out in the end. It's our hope, and it sustains you to keep going when the present reality is not what you desire. And it's not even maybe what God long desires for his people. And the last one, we, we don't have to hit as much. He repeats um, his main themes, but just to fill in the blanks. It is God's grace that sends Jesus to a bloody cross to make you his own. So he repeats and he personalizes grace not being impersonal, but grace being, you know, a concept, an act of goodness that saves you and then leads to your transformation becomes Jesus, the person of Jesus who breaks grace into our lives, who by his sacrifice, by giving himself up willingly and voluntarily to a cross for you on your behalf, in your place. Why? To redeem you from slavery, to set you free from slavery, the slavery to sin and death and eternity apart from God, he's sacrificed himself on a cross for you to buy you back out of slavery. And then look what it says to make you his own. The sins of your life don't define you. Your family's jacked up past does not define you. Or really the amazing family that you come from doesn't define you. You are not accepted and defined in the eyes of God by making up what you've done wrong. You're accepted and belong to God because of what Jesus has done right. And you belong to Jesus and you're accepted with Jesus and you fit in with Jesus and you will be forever accepted by him. What you long for in being accepted by your friends is given to you by Jesus because to, to fit in with him and long for him and to be accepted by him is the desire of the heart. And he gives that to you. Not by you making up what you've done wrong, not by you beating yourself up in a corner, but by you actively embracing his son, embracing Jesus. You belong. You're his own people. And you know what his people do? They burn with passion to do goodness. They burn with passion to set right things that are wrong, to make whole things that are broken, 
to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what God's people burn for. They are zealous for good works. They're zealous for the lonely to find a home. They're zealous for the for the orphans to find families. They're zealous for the widows to be cared for. They're zealous for lives of good works. They're zealous for their tongues to be controlled and life to come out of them instead of instead of death and sarcasm and joking. Like they're zealous for good works. They're zealous for wherever the curse is found is the Christmas hymns for blessings to flow there. Whatever is broken in this world, we burn with passion to make right or to comfort until they're made right. That's Christianity. Zealous for good works, not forced to do good works, not beat up by a pastor to do good works, not having a Bible hit over your head to do good works, but an internal burning to do goodness, an internal burning for godliness to be our experience. Do you have that? Because the grace that saves you is the same grace that produces that. And if that's not part of your life, even the flicker that may have kind of dimmed out by life and experience, if it's not even there in a flicker, like there's some serious reasons to just doubt. Do I really have a relationship with Jesus if he's not producing a love for Jesus and the family trait like the family's name means goodness? And so does the family business of goodness and the family's reputation of goodness part of what I desire for my own life? Because God's people who are saved by the grace that broke into our lives become zealous for goodness. A few practical things as we as we wrap up. The first wage a grace filled war on sin in your life. Wage a grace filled war with sin on your own in your life. We all have those little closets of our heart that we've closed off and said, God, not that one. God, I'm going to keep that one. God, that one's not too big a deal. God, there's a good reason for that one. There's a good excuse for that bitterness. God, there's a good reason for me to open my mouth and talk about people. I'm just I'm just evaluating. I'm just giving prayer requests. Right. There's a good reason for my envy because, you know, I work hard and deserve it. There's a good reason for my pride. I'm self-made. There's these little corners of our hearts where like, God, you can't go in there and have that one. But you know what grace will do? It will give you the power to go start flinging open doors and letting God invade those corners and putting a light inside those closets instead of darkness. And so will you declare war on your sin or will you keep coddling it? Will you keep making friends with it? I promise you it doesn't affect no one. It destroys. Sin has no power to do anything but kill. To kill you. To kill your relationships, to kill your intimacy with the Father. That's all sin can ever do. It cannot give you the life it promises you. It cannot give you the good that you think it can give you. It can give you a a temporary, fleeting pleasure substitute that brings with it regret and destruction. Wage war on the sin of your life. Second, apply grace to a fresh quest for godliness. That's my desire for you this year. That's my desire for me this year. Increase. Increased godliness, increased desire for closeness with Jesus, increased desire for my life to look more like Jesus and less like me. And the only way that will happen is not if you try harder and do better, but if the grace of God invades every corner of your life. And so apply grace to a positive life of righteousness, a positive life to making the people around you's lives richer, more flourishing. Better because you serve them, because you care about them, because you share your table with them, because you find practical ways to do it, because you go to work like you're working for Jesus and not for your boss. Like everywhere you go, things are better because of your relationship with Jesus. And then last, rejoice that grace declares you belong to him. How many of us are living our lives not fitting in? How many of us are living our lives longing for some acceptance, some belonging And it's already given to you. How many of us are living our lives longing and working and struggling and so that God may just really accept me finally when he's already like, I've done it. I already accomplished it. Live in it. Live 2020 like you actually belong to God, not because of what you do, but because of what he did. Live like you fit in. Live like you're part of the family. Ask for the grace of increase in 2020. I'm going to. Not the increase in my stuff. Goodness gracious, I need a shovel to get rid of some of it. But for the increase of my life of being conformed to the image of Christ, an increase of godliness. Let's pray. So, Father, 
and plead with you. Create fresh desire in us. Desire that's gotten seeped out and and drifted out over time and over experiences and over circumstances and over choices. Lord, love for you that's grown cold and dim. Lord, the running after you that's become sitting. God, would you would you come and let grace break into our history again, break into our our experience again? Train us again to say no. Train us again to run from sin that kills us. Train us again to run after you with all that we are and all that we have. God, we need that. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, it is by grace you are saved, not by church you are saved, not by membership you are saved, not by any other way. Have you ever come face to face by the work of the Holy Spirit with your own sin and how that sin will separate you forever and ever and ever from God, no matter what you do? And then have you ever come face to face with Jesus who lived the perfect life you couldn't live, who died on a cross to pay for your sins and who rose again and has sent his spirit to offer life? Have you ever turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus alone to save you? You can come. We can pray together. You can fill out the little white sheet in your bulletin and just say, I've got questions. I need to walk through this with somebody. Do that. Don't let it pass. By grace, you are saved. But maybe as you sit here, there's those areas of your life God's convicting. And when I talk about it, you know what those closets are. You know what those corners of your hearts are. And today is the day. Now is the time where God wants to start kicking those things open. And you just need to expose those to him. Would you come? Would you say, God, I'm here. Take it. I don't want it. God, let grace do all the work it wants to do in me. Or maybe you fall on the spectrum where you've you've religious yourself to death. You've worked so hard and all that you've come up with inside is empty. And you need that fresh experience of this thing called grace. Oh, the active love of God on your behalf and you don't deserve it. The active love of God that wells up within you and you need to taste it again because it's been a long time. And you've run dry. Come and ask. Ask where you are. Let's stand and sing and you respond as the Lord is leading you in this moment.